Hello, this is you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, and you're listening to Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. Hi, this is you, Utah Phillips, with you once again in the new millennium. There's Steve Baker, who's turning the knobs, twisting the dials, and so on. The wonderful music of the Borsdorf to start off a whole new century. Uh, my thanks very, very much also to Glenn Howard for the, my record finder, a great record finder for making this uh, program possible. The words you were just listening to are those of uh, General Pershing addressing the American people in 1917 from uh, the American Expeditionary Force in France during the First World War. We are here in Nevada City. Uh, we have just uh, passed what I choose to call the Bolonium, uh, Eurocentric chrono-imperialism rampant. And, um, of course, I, we bear into this century all of the problems of the last century and some in a more aggravated form. I'm particularly concerned about genetically altered vegetables since my daughter seems to be dating one. General Pershing, you know, I've been watching the lists here as we approached the bolonium, the linoleum, whatever it's called. And look into the lists in the magazines and the newspapers uh, about I- events that shaped this century, uh, artists that shaped this century, uh, the great songs and what have you. And I've thought about this a great deal. And to me, the event which shaped the 20th century more than any other one was the First World War. That's why I was playing General Pershing. World War I changed everything, and as Che Greenwood says, it keeps on changing everything. World War I, uh, the beginning of aerial warfare, changed warfare forever, the way that we kill each other. Um, the Treaty of Versailles, at the end of the war, laid the foundation and made inevitable the Second World War. Uh, the Russian Revolution, after the impoverishment of the Russian people because of the war, uh, laid the groundwork for the Cold War, which consumed half of this century. Technologically, um, the first re- really massive use of, uh, of mass media by the state to mobilize tremendous uh, support for or against whatever it chose. Everything changed and continues to keep on changing. So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to offer you, I'm not a historian or documentarian. I'm going to give you some impressions, some ideas. Um, I'm going to give you some stories from people who were in Europe. German, French, Russian, all sides, just give you some ideas and, and, and let those ideas bang against each other uh, to build a sense of, at least for me, for, of, of contradiction. And at the end of it all, um, you let it settle out wherever, wherever your mind puts it. But at the end, examine your thoughts and examine your feelings, feelings and see where they are. First, the headlines. 
from the New York Times, Monday, June 29, 1914. Heir to Austria's throne is slain with his wife by a Bosnian youth to avenge seizure of his country. Vienna, July 28, 1914. Telegram from Count Berkhold to the Serbian Foreign Office in Belgrade. Austria-Hungary considers herself from now on to be in a state of war with Serbia. From the Sun, New York, January 29, 1914. Serbian ships seized, Russia mobilizes. St. Petersburg dispatches say it is known that the moment the Austrians cross the Serb frontier, the Russian mobilization orders will be published and Russia will take the field. Paris, August 3, 1914. The German ambassador to Monsieur René Viviani, president of the Council, uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, dear le, pre- dear le President, that I am instructed and I have the honor to inform Your Excellency that in the presence of acts of aggression, the German Empire considers itself in a state of war with France in consequence of the acts of this latter power. London, August 5, 1914. Announcement issued at the Foreign Office at 12.15 a.m. Owing to the summary rejection by the German government of the request made by His Majesty's government for assurances that the neutrality of Belgium would be respected, His Majesty's ambassador in Berlin has received his passports, and His Majesty's government has declared to the German government that a state of war exists between Great Britain and Germany as from 11 p.m. on August the 4th. Tokyo, August the 23rd, 1914. We, by grace of heaven, emperor of Japan, seated on the throne occupied by the same dynasty from time immemorial, do, by hereby, he, do hereby make the following proclamation to all our loyal and brave subjects. We hereby declare war against Germany. Washington, April 6th, 1917. Proclamation by the President. Whereas the Congress of the United States and the exercise of the constitutional authority vested in them have resolved by joint resolution of the Senate and the House of Representatives bearing date this day that a state of war between the United States and the imperial German government which has been thrust upon the United States is hereby formally declared. Let's listen to Nora Bays over there. Show your grip, do your bit. The Yankees show the ranks from the towns and 
Goes to War, from Class of 1902 by Ernst Gleisner. The Wachtum Rhine was sung in the Song of the Flags. The professor joined in the singing, my mother as well. I was afraid of so much joy, for I could not help thinking of Gaston. If Gaston had been there, I would gladly have sung too. Do you see the people, said the professor to my mother, how uplifted they are and how united. Does not that in itself justify the war? He pointed to the waiting room, which rang with songs and shouting. The men were shouting brother across to one another and went about shaking hands, although few of them were acquainted. Many of them were workmen. One could recognize them by their caps. They had come from Switzerland, from Italy, from France, where they had been working on machines. They went from table to table and fraternized with rich town people who had just come from holidaying in the mountains. In a corner sat a man of Jewish appearance, along with two frightened daughters. He kept on treating the workmen to beer, and when they sang, he sang too. We are all brothers, shouted the workmen, and the gentleman nodded rapturously and paid. Is it not wonderful, said the professor, all our social divisions have vanished. My mother nodded. She said something about mass emotion. This war, answered the professor, is an unparalleled aesthetic experience. For the first time I have seen the soul of the people laid bare. I sat with my lemonade in front of me and still thought of Gaston. Would he be singing too? Let's listen to It's Time for Every Boy to Be a Soldier. Now, remember in 1914, the most popular song in the United States, before our entry into the war, was I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. Now you want to put a musket on his shoulder to shoot some other mother's darling boy. In 1917, when we entered the war, this was the most popular song. It's time for every boy to be a soldier, sung by Charles Hart. Around his breast, it's time to 
Farm Trilogy by R. H. Motram. In some, some Flemish village to which I had gone to enforce some order obsolete as soon as it was issued, I stopped for an omelette and white wine and found myself among French flying corps officers, aspiring aviators in the perfect fitness of the French language. There, almost unrecognizable, so thin, so morose had he grown, was d'Archeville. His eyes had yellowed and dwindled, Gone was his azure and strawberry uniform, gone his egregious friendliness. He was making no liaison now with English or any other man. I have often thought I could tell those who knew that they were going to be killed, and I was sure that he knew. I doubt if he would have come across to my table had I not gone to him, so unimportant had I or any other living creature become. I offered him my flask, for he was drinking hot wine and water, but he refused it, saying something indistinctly about sacre colique. He only added, in response to my clumsy attempts at cheerfulness, a muttered sacre guerre, sacre vie, and left with his comrades. I never saw him again. Is that true? No, I see him now. I shall see him always. I am trying to see him clearer and clearer. But however clear, alas, he is but a portrait, lifelike, I hope, but flat upon the canvas, grayed with memory. Someone told me he was killed, but I knew. And now, haunted by his eyes, before I can hold out my hand in greeting, I must raise it in salute. I am English. He was French. He meant his war. Reginald Warenrath, pack up your troubles in your old kit bag. Oh, <laughs> 
It should be remembered that during the First World War, the German-Americans suffered uh, terribly. We recall during the Second World War how Japanese-Americans were persecuted. Well, German-Americans were persecuted much more viciously during the First World War. Let me give you from the Golden Pilgrimage by Bayard Schindel, a German-American experience of the war, followed by an address to the American people from the American ambassador to Germany prior to the war, Ambassador James W. Gerard, and after that, Irving Kaufman singing Don't Bite the Hand That's Feeding You. Bayard Schindel. Brentano's foreign department was filling up with books which were supposed to portray the German occupation of Belgium and France. The books bore fantastic titles, The Blonde Beast, The Hun Conqueror, The Brutish Black Eagle. There was one in particular which seemed to Peter an instance of treachery to the gentleman's profession of arms. On the jacket was a picture of a woman sitting up in bed, while a German officer with a twisted and sneering face leaned over the foot of the bed and smiled dreadfully. Among the German officers whom Peter had seen, there was no one who looked like the picture for they were fat-faced men or hard-faced men, and it had been a long time since one of them had smiled. He wasn't even sure that the German naval officers would not leer at ladies who were sitting up in bed scared to death. In Manila he had seen the officers of Admiral von Spee's fleet, and they too had been hard and unsmiling. He became annoyed at this sort of thing. Gentlemen fought with each other and did not talk behind backs. His contempt for the Allies started at that moment. They could not beat the German army by fair means, so they had to try to do it by foul. He said as much to his mother. Oh, well, both sides are doing it, she said indifferently. It seems to be part of war. Propaganda. I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. We have problems in this war no other nations have. Fortunately, the great majority of American citizens of German descent have, in this great crisis of our history, shown themselves splendidly loyal to our flag. Everyone had a right to sympathize with any warring nation. But now that we are in the war, there are only two sides, and the time has come when every citizen must declare himself American or a traitor. We must disappoint 
the Germans, who have always believed that the German-Americans here would risk their property, their children's future, and their own necks, and take up arms for the Kaiser. The foreign minister of Germany once said to me, your country does not dare do anything against Germany because we have in your country 500,000 German reservists who will rise in arms against your government if you dare to make a move against Germany. Well, I told him that that might be so, but that we had 501,000 lampposts in this country, and that that was where the reservists would be hanging the day after they tried to rise. by Wilford Ewart. Adrian and Eric watched the scene between the trenches in silence. They had drawn their revolvers, but the effort to hold back even their well-disciplined men was without avail. There was nothing to be done. An insurgent, common impulse of the combatants prevailed, and gray and khaki swarmed out to meet each other, one or two Germans in white overalls or smocks among them, 
at the willow-lined stream. They crossed it and mingled in a haphazard throng. They talked and gesticulated. They shook hands. They patted each other on the shoulders, laughed like schoolboys, and out of sheer lightheartedness leapt across the trickle of water. An Englishman fell in, and a German helped him out amid laughter that echoed back on the crisp air to the trenches. They exchanged cigars and sausage and sauerkraut and concentrated coffee for cigarettes and bully beef and ration biscuits and tobacco. They exchanged experiences and compliments and comparisons, addresses and good wishes and even hopes and fears. So was Christmas Day celebrated upon the battlefield. There appeared after a quarter of an hour two German officers who wished to take photographs, a request which the men refused. Our artillery will open on you in exactly five minutes, they retorted. Get back to your trenches or take the consequences. And the trench world was lifeless, unpeopled once more. The guns thudded again. The time, this time from behind the Aubert's Ridge, shells crouched upon all the roads. Fountains of earth and dust and masonry shot skyward around the ruined village. There were death and wounds for those who lingered in the open. Only the rifles remained silent. Morning passed. Silver and still, the afternoon waned into winter's early dusk. Frost gripped again with the night, and along both lines of trenches, torch-like fires burned. Extra rum was issued. There were the sounds of singing. Here's John McCormick, Keep the Home Fires Burning. Though your lads are far away, they dream 
And now three views of the war, two German and one Russian, from Men at War by Andreas Latzko. Lieutenant Weixler, red-cheeked and radiant, came and shouted in his face that the company was ready. It struck the captain like a blow below the belt. It sounded like a challenge. The captain could not help hearing in, in it the insolent question, Well, why aren't you as glad of the danger as I am? Every drop of Captain, Mar- captain Marshner's blood rose to his temples. He had to look aside, and his eyes wandered involuntarily up to the shrapnel clouds, bearing a prayer, a silent invocation to those senseless things up there rattling down so indiscriminately, a prayer that they would teach this cold-blooded boy suffering, convince him that he was vulnerable. From the case of Sergeant Grischa by Arnold Zweig, as the General Seifenhahn speaking to a representative of the Red Cross. Seifenhahn nodded. Look at the facts. How long does this degree of willingness last? If the German soldier refuses to obey orders, he is shot. And as for that shadow of a possibility of returning, if he's lucky this time, he'll be for it the next time. Consider, Excellence, phosgene shells and gas attacks are gradually reducing the scope of the divine mercy that you mentioned. The art of war, looked at from the technical point of view, seems to be intended to put God in his proper place. I prefer, though I am afraid I shall offend you, to take the plain, blunt view of the situation. The state creates justice. The individual is a louse. From the Russian... The Land of the Children by Gusiev Orenbergsky. He looked up at the clouds but could no longer see there the kind-faced, gray-haired god who in bygone days had winked at him good-naturedly as he puffed his pipe. Yes, no matter how long he looked, you could not see him. He must be afraid lest he, stuck it, he was struck in the forehead because it was no joke this thing men had invented down here. It was not like lightning but immeasurably worse. And Vivilla thought, if he were God, he would have brought forth such a storm and blown such a gale over the world that it would have driven everybody home. Stop your fighting. You've had your fun. That's enough now. One should be moderate. Vivilla was frightened by such thoughts. He also felt weary, disheartened, unable to understand what was happening to the world. When off duty, he would take out his flute, but that gave him no help either. The flute had forgotten how to sing, no matter how hard he tried. It only wept as though it longed for those places where the mermaids play in the sand and the kind old god puffs his pipe. Vivilla sighed and put the flute away. He listened to the talk among the soldiers. The talk had become angry. Once again, John McCormick. It's a long way to Tipperary. <laughs> Farewell, let's go. 
It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart's right there. It's a long way to Tipperary. thoughts of a British airman whose aircraft had just been riddled with bullets. This is from Down in Flames by Ray Redman. Men aware that they are about to die review their whole lives within the brief space of a few seconds, we are assured. Murray had not found it so. Glimpses of a house and an ant and a miniature had flitted across the screen of his consciousness, to be sure, and with them had flitted other incidental, fragmentary images. But the dominant picture was of a scanty strip of carpet, not more than one foot by three, a strip of worn green carpet, contemptible in itself, but in its present surroundings a symbol of the luxury that was Rome and the voluptuousness that was Egypt. It was, in short, the closest thing to a rug that could be found in the Nissen hut occupied by Hugh Murray and Grant Hobson. And it was a prize beyond price. Its possessor could place it by his bedside, sure that bare feet would rejoice in its comforting surface on chill mornings. Its possessor could stand smugly on it uh, last thing at night before crawling towards sleep between thick blankets. It was a prize indeed, and at first it had been a cause of battle. But now a sweet spirit of compromise encircled it. Murray had it one week, Hobson had it the next. For seven days, Murray grinned condescendingly as his rugless hot fellow, while succeeding seven days heard Hobson making genial remarks about people who were too poor even to afford the ordinary comforts of home. This was Murray's week for the rug. 
and the day was only Monday. But why, he wondered now, had it assumed such importance to him during those moments of supreme danger? A rug seemed a silly thing for a chap to be thinking about at a time like that. Of course, he and Hobson had pretended it was far more important than it really was, and each had played up to it, to the other in their struggle for it. But Murray didn't really give a hoot in Hades whether he had the rug or not. Why, then? Why had it so obtruded itself upon him? He could still hear himself saying to himself, Damn him, Hobson will get the carpet now, and it's my week for it. Silly, wasn't it, with those aircraft potting at him? Is Arthur Fields. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. I chanced to meet a soldier friend of mine He'd been in camp for several weeks and he was looking fine His muscles had developed and his cheeks were rosy red I asked him how he liked the life and this is what he said Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call You've got to get up, you've got to get up, you've got to get up this morning. Someday I'm going to murder the bugler. Someday they're going to find him dead. I'll amputate his reveille and step upon it heavily and spend the rest of my life in bed. A bugler in the army is the luckiest of men. He wakes the boys at five and then goes back to bed again. He doesn't have to blow again until the afternoon. If everything goes well with me, I'll be a bugler soon. Oh, how I hate to get up in the morning. Oh, how I'd love to remain in bed. For the hardest blow of all is to hear the bugler call. Thomas Boyd. Hicks at times would think of a letter that his mother had written him in which she had offered to send him a quantity of cyanide of potassium. You know, son, she had written, this war is not like the war that Grandpa used to tell you about. Those frightful Germans have liquid fire and deadly gases, and it is only when I think of how you would suffer if you were burned by their infernal liquid fire that I offer to send it. If you want it, just mark a cross at the bottom of your next letter. But Hicks had not marked any cross. He had laughed at the notion at first, 
and then, as the month slipped by, he had forgotten entirely about it. Now he wondered if he had done wisely. Suppose he were shot like that fellow in the trench the other day, or gassed as badly as the Frenchman whom he and Pug had carried back to the first aid station. Yes, it would have been comforting. Let's listen to There's a Long, Long Trail of Winding again by Count John McCormick. Nights are growing very lonely, days are very that these songs weren't just heard on hand-cranked Victrolas around the country. These songs were created to be sung aloud. They were flogged by the singers, by the writers, by the publishing companies in the bars and in the music halls. And at rallies, these songs were sung out loud by millions and millions of people gathered together in unity. The Battle of Verdun, from the German side, from The Way of Sacrifice by Fritz von Unruh. 
Phipps crept out of his hiding place into a midnight world. His Dixie glowed like a wrinkled face. He pushed the leg of a comrade whose wet boots were hissing till the soles buckled away from the fire, and himself perched on a barrel. Beaumont Hill shuddered in the gunfire. Poor contemporaries, he muttered, looking through his glass at the reeking smoke. The golden star shone like sun in a sandstorm. A stomach formed, huge as the word world. The word of God stood juicily around it. People streamed forward with endless garlands for it, till suddenly the words of millions gleamed out, and all the creatures of smoke vanished in the night. Were I a pharaoh, I would call for interpreters of dreams and would say, What is the interpretation of that stomach round which millions of swords fight? The vision of this paunch will not depart from my mind. Let's all be Americans now, the American Quartet. Tribune, Monday, November 11, 1918. 
Germany has surrendered. World War ended at 6 a.m. From the French, The Poilus by Joseph Deltil. At last, the documents are ready. Erzberger advances. He is given a pen. For a second, he looks at this pen. His hand trembles. He feels the sting of pins and needles in his fingers. He, But suddenly the pen falls from his hand, slashing the air, splashing ink on the carpet. Erzberger blushes, stammers an apology. Another pen has passed him. He bends over all this red tape, signs his name. The scratch of his pen explodes in the white silence, soars upward, resounds through the white dawn, reverberates among the nations. It is five o'clock in the morning. To the end of all time, I imagine men will hear the scratch of that pen. The same day, at eleven o'clock sharp, the Poilu fired the last shot of the war. He was an excellent marksman. The Bosch was twenty yards away. He fired. He missed. Man had just found his heart once more. Last night I was dreaming of days that are gone, of days that you might recall. And just like a photo Come home. I'm a good star mother. 
Think about it. Figure it out. Welcome to the new millennium. You've been listening to you, Utah Phillips, and Loafer's Glory, the hobo jungle of the mind. From Carl Sandburg. Pile the bodies high at Austerlitz and Waterloo. Shovel them under and let me work. I am the grass. I cover all, and pile them high at Gettysburg, and pile them high at Yerps and Verdun, shovel them under and let me work. Two years, ten years, and passengers ask the conductor, what is this place? Where are we now? I am the grass. Let me work. 